So glad that you guys are here at Sedaris. Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. Welcome to our five-week discussion of heaven. Uh, maybe some of you came specifically because you wanted to hear a little bit more about heaven. I think many people have many questions about this topic, as they well should. Some might say it's escapist to think so much about heaven. I'd actually say it's arrogant not to think about heaven. Ancient merchants often wrote these words, memento mori, which means think of death, in large letters across their first page of accounting books. Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, commissioned a servant to stand in his presence each and every day to say these words to him, Philip, you will die. In contrast, the king of France, Louis XIV, decreed that the word death would not be uttered in his presence. Seems to me that most of us today are more like Louis than we are like Philip. We deny death, avoid the thought of death, except when it's forced upon us. And by doing so, we actually live, in a sense, gripped by the fear of death. But praise be to God, Jesus has delivered us from this fear. Jesus has delivered us from the fear of death. In Psalm 39, King David, the king of Israel, said this, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made me a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each person's life, your life, my life, is but a breath. Picture, picture a single breath, even on a day like today where you could see the vapor exiting your body and then disappearing. That's what the Word of God tells us this life on this earth is like. Such brevity. And therefore the wise will consider what awaits on the other side of that breath. That breath that so quickly comes and goes. But yet most still remain unprepared for death. The wise will go to a reliable source to investigate what's on the other side. And if they discover that the choices that they make during this life, during this breath, should affect the life to come, then they will adjust their choices accordingly. My hope is that during this five-week study of what the Bible has to say about heaven, it might help you in these endeavors. I think it will. I know for myself, the more I have pondered, imagined, longed for heaven, the more God has aided me in living life well here and now. So though we're talking about a subject which is to come, we are not talking about a subject which is to come. We're talking about life now. So how shall we proceed? How will we study this Expansive, as we'll still today, expansive topic of heaven. Well, in 1902, 
The five W's and the one H. You know that? They were memorialized in a poem which went like this. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. Okay, that's, that's funny. I like that. Okay. Okay. 1902. By 1917, okay, the five W's and the one H were being taught in schools around the country, journalism classes in high school. It was kind of a popular thing. However, by 1940, this style of writing, this style of journalism, which taught you to put the answer to these five plus H questions in the first paragraph of your story, this style, had actually become old-fashioned. People started to think, oh, that's not the best way to do it. Now, that being said, I still remember learning the five W's and the one H. Do you guys remember that? I remember, and I was born just a few years after 1940. But for some reason, it, it was going out of style. And I thought it might be helpful to actually structure our current series on heaven around the five W's and the one H. So that's what we're going to do. Because to be honest, if, if there is one big story to report on in this life, it's the promise that there's more life after this life. The promise of heaven. And that promise permeates throughout scriptures. So it seems to me we better treat this like a journalism story. Now that being said, I fear that in our modern attempts to be relevant, current, original, and, and to be honest, just not old-fashioned, we've, we've buried the lead. We've buried the lead oftentimes as a church. And the lead is this. Jesus has secured a place for us, a place we call heaven, and he's preparing it for us as we speak. That's the big lead. Gets buried. And maybe we've buried it because we feel like the picture of heaven that's been traditionally portrayed isn't appealing. Maybe it's a, it's a bit fairy taleish, And so we just don't want to talk about it. That's honest. That, that, that happens. That's real. I get that. But rather than not speak of it at all, I thought maybe we'll just speak of it more clearly, speak of it more honestly, and maybe we just need to speak of it more extensively so that it doesn't get whittled down to these traditional pictures of angels on clouds and harps and, and things that, to be honest, it is not. So, in this current world, in these current days, in this current city where pleasures, comforts, control abound, it makes sense. It's understandable that we, that we would not want to ask the question, why do we really need Jesus? It makes sense, right? Because we have many things, many good things, but... When we bring heaven back into focus, when we see this promise, when we see that everything's leading there, that that's actually the lead story, then 
if that's true, then in this city, at this time, with this affluence, we will say, once again, I believe, that's why I need Jesus. And again, it's not just about for then. It begins right now. So we'll see that tonight and over the next five weeks. So excited about this series. I can't tell you. This week, just getting to read and study about heaven, I said, this is the best job in the world. Now, most other days I don't feel that. But this week I felt that. This is great. I love heaven. So this should be exciting stuff to hear about heaven. Maybe you don't know much about heaven at all. So glad that you're here. Maybe you have friends who don't know anything about heaven, that they really think that what Christians believe is that you go and sit on clouds and play harps and you sing lullabies to Jesus for the rest of eternity. Well, I wouldn't want to be a part of that either. So tell them, come here and hear what heaven actually is. The what, who, where, how, why of this new creation that God has promised. Amen? Okay. Last week, Easter Sunday, we answered part of this question. We saw the resurrection of Jesus was actually the first fruits, the beginning of what we will be calling heaven. And this heaven is actually a totally new thing. Now, oftentimes, we'll, we'll, let me just give you some language here. Oftentimes, you'll read in Scripture about heaven, which is, is a place, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the when of heaven. Heaven is, is, is a word that's used of both a current reality when we die, but also a future reality. Primarily, when I'm speaking of heaven now, and what we're looking at in this study is the heaven which is to come, which is the new creation. And it began that Easter morning when Jesus rose from the dead in a new resurrected body that was nothing like his old earthly body, and it was nothing like his heavenly existence that, ha- that existed before the incarnation. It was actually a brand new third thing, a new creation, the beginning of heaven, the first fruits. And we too get to experience a resurrection like this. That's the first promise of heaven, that we, we don't live disembodied for the rest of eternity, that we live with new, resurrected, heavenly bodies, just like Jesus. So you could say it this way. Current heaven is God's home. Current earth is our home. Jesus Christ, as the God-man, forever links God and mankind and thereby links heaven and earth. The idea of heaven and earth became one new creation, and that is explicitly biblical teaching. Christ will make earth into heaven, and Christ will make heaven into earth. So when God walked with Adam in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of creation in the garden, earth was like heaven's backyard. The new earth, the new creation the new heaven, it will be more than just the backyard to heaven. It will be all that is. It will be heaven itself. And for those of us who know Jesus now, we'll get the privilege of living with Jesus forever. So see, God's plan has always been, it always will be, he will accomplish it, His plan is to shrink the gulf between spiritual and physical worlds. No dividing of loyalties, no dividing of realms. There will be one cosmos, one universe, under one Lord. That's Jesus Christ forever. Okay? This is the unstoppable plan of God. This is where history is headed. This is what we get to talk about 
for the next five weeks. This is what we get to sing about. This is what we get to giggle about. And we should giggle <laughs> when we... That's right, Ben Krillman. We should giggle when we hear about the new heavens and the new earth. So, here we go. We'll get to the what and the where and the who and the when and the how of heaven in the next few weeks. But tonight, I think it's necessary to tackle the why of heaven. Why did God have to create a new creation? Why is heaven necessary? Why can't we just kind of keep going like we're going? Why? Why, do we, why? why is this a part of God's plan? So to answer that, I want to I read for you a passage I read last week, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, very end of the Bible, if you've got one, grab it, open it up, look it up on your phone. There's Bibles in the seat back in front of you. It's almost the very end of the Bible, so just turn to the end and then go through the table of contents, the index, and you will find Revelation 21. It's only one chapter after it. And this is what the Word of God says. Revelation 21 Starting in verse 1. You there? Here we go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. It's a great promise. Now here's the key piece to answer the question, why this new thing had to come about and will come about. Look in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There is a way in which God wants to be with us, to dwell with us. Now, he is, he is not unable to be in this earth but not in the way that he wants to be. He wants to make it his home. He wants his house to be right next to yours. He wants to dwell with us. And because of the way the world is, because of what's happened to God's original creation, he cannot do that in the way that he desires to do that, in the way that is for our greatest good, in the way that every tear will be wiped away. He cannot dwell with us, in our presence, us in his presence, unless he makes a new creation. And so that is why it's a necessity. That is why 
God desires it. That is why God wills it, and that's why God plans it, and that's why God will bring it about. Thomas Goodwin puts it this way, speaking of Jesus as the new perfect Adam. And Jesus, of course, being the second person of the triune God. He says this, Just as the first Adam had a world made for him, so shall Jesus Christ, the second Adam, have a world made for him. This world was not good enough for him. He has a better, a, a better appointed world than that which Adam, the old Adam, had. He has a new heaven and a new earth according to the promise where the saints shall reign. So why, why is heaven necessary? God wants to give his son, Jesus, a better world. One in which he deserves to rule and reign over and that we get to reign and rule with him in. So you can think about it this way. Why is heaven necessary? Because we need a new environment A new environment is needed which fits God's character so that he might dwell within it. It's the first part of it. Second part of it, we need a new environment. A new environment is needed which fits our new resurrected selves. This environment does not fit Either God himself or the resurrected creation, humanity, and all the like. So he had to make a new thing. Uh, after mentioning last week the greatest Kevin Costner movie of all time, which is The Bodyguard, everyone agreed with me after much, I mean, I barely had to convince any of you, everyone knew it. Uh, I went back and I started listening to the Bodyguard soundtrack. God bless Spotify. You can do that now. You don't even have to own the album. You just listen to it. And I, to be honest, I started tearing up <laughs> as I was listening to it. I didn't know why. Uh, and then I remember me and my sisters growing up. Now, you, some of you might be too young to remember Whitney Houston, but she was like Beyonce before Beyonce was even born. So, come on. And... Uh, she was a true triple, triple threat. Did you know what that is? She could sing. Seriously, she could sing like an angel. Did you hear some of the music when you came in? She could act. She's actually not a bad actor, like most singers, you know. And to be honest, she was beautiful. Whitney Houston. And so I was listening to her songs, and I was remembering that I used to sing these when I was just a boy. And I used to try to hit the high notes. So much easier when you're a 10-year-old <laughs> than when you're a 34-year-old, okay? So I used to do that with my sisters, and, and, and I think all those memories were flooding back. I, <laughs> I was thinking about, man, Whitney Houston was an incredible creation of God. But if you know her story, she never reached the potential with what, to which she had. Now, she rose to heights that no, nobody else, she was a true a true star in every sense of the word, but she still had untapped potential. And part of the reason for that was that she got into a relationship with a smooth-talking cat named Bobby Brown. Do you guys know about Bobby Brown? Bobby Brown. He's no Jay-Z. 
He's more like Chris Brown. If for those of you, he was not a good, great dude. Now, that doesn't mean Whitney's off the hook. She had her part in it. But basically, they got really into to drugs. Um, there was some d- domestic violence. Anyhow, Whitney Houston, when they got married in 1992, when the bodyguard came out, she never really got back to that place. It was sort of a, a slow, long decline. Super sad because she clearly has a gift from God, right? I mean, you hear her sing, and you're like, that is what singing is going to sound like in heaven. And I say, bring it together, Dave. Bring it together. Heaven is necessary because in God's perfect design, there is a world in which there is Whitney Houston without Bobby Brown. There is a world that that God has envisioned and designed and desires in which Bobby Brown has no sway over Whitney Houston. And she can become and be everything that God wants her to be. Let me explain that now in more detail. Why you can't just keep going in the same direction with the same things and the same people and get to where God wants you to go. So let's talk about this. A new environment for us. A new environment in which God can dwell right beside us. And there are four distinctives. Four distinctives of this new creation that explain better this reason why heaven is required in God's ultimate plan. The first, we've already talked about it. Heaven is a real place of creation. Heaven is not just a spiritual place. There will be rivers and buildings and trees and animals. It's not just a spiritual place. Talked about that last week. That God wants to be able to dwell in creation, not outside of creation, with all that He has created. He wants to be right in it. And He made this possible through sending God the Son into the world, becoming a man, the man Jesus And then using the death and the resurrection of Jesus to unite the physical and the spiritual together. We talked about that already. I won't get into it. But he wanted a place that was physical, not just spiritual. Number two, he wanted a place, and heaven is a place of holiness. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, Your eyes, speaking about God, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So God is a perfect holy being, and He literally cannot cohabitate with corruption of any kind. He cannot cohabitate with evil. He cannot cohabitate with unrighteousness, which is wrongdoing. He cannot do it. He cannot be in the presence of it. Therefore, He has to create a new environment If he is to dwell there, that is void of all unholiness, all uncleanness. This world clearly is not that place. So you're thinking to yourself, God, why can't you just try a little bit harder? Why can't you just try a little bit harder? Put up with some of the bad. You know, it's not that bad. You'll get used to it. Can't you just be a little bit more tolerant, God? Here, here's the deal. You're missing the point. He literally cannot 
It's, it's, it's not an issue of he doesn't want to. He cannot. It's like oil and water. They just can't. Even if you came up with some new revolutionary chemistry that, that helps these, they can't do it. They cannot cohabitate God and unholiness. So this is why Jesus had to come. He had to come. He had to die that we might receive the righteousness of God through our union with Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. God wanted to be back in cohabitation with us, and the way to do it was sending Jesus to be a sacrifice that we might put on the righteousness of God through union with Christ. Let me give you an illustration of why unholiness must be wiped out in heaven. Um, Once sin entered the world... A curse entered the world, and everything was infected by this unholiness. Everything, including my family, the Evanger family. And one of the ways that this curse worked itself out in my family tree was the corruption of our bodies. We have terrible hips. We have a hip issue. Hips, terrible hips. If you see me trying to stretch, trying, keyword, trying to stretch, you'll, you'll literally, your jaw will drop. You'll be like, seriously, that's all that you can bend? Yes, the curse got to my hips. It got to my father's hips. It got to my grandmother's hips. It's been a curse in the family many years. And so uh, several years ago, like over a decade ago, my father finally had to get rid of the bad hips. He had to just take them out. Uh, and he had to get some new hips. You might actually call these hips holy hips. My dad was given holy hips, okay? And they just put them right in there, holy hips right in the body. And and in fact, if you watch my dad stretch now, and I watch him, I get so jealous. How do you do that, dad? I mean, it fixed his movement within his hips. Much happier, much more flexible. Um, But you know what's interesting is it didn't fix everything, okay? He got new hips, but if you still walk in, watch him walk around, you're a little bit worried for him, to be honest. Make sure he might not make it to the mailbox on, all the way back. Better have his beeper. If you watch him run, even worse. Doesn't look like Usain Bolt. Looks more like Barney Fife. Because of the curse, okay, See, the curse wasn't just in his hips. The curse was throughout his whole body. And so even though he has holy hips, the rest of his body is still corrupt and it is still warring against those new holy hips. And so he remains relatively ill. It's actually quite active for a 65-year-old, but he's clearly not how God designed him to be. And to make a short story long... (laughs) Uh, Let me just say this. If my dad were to continue in the current situation, he'll have to get his hips replaced about once every 15 to 20 years because everything unholy around those holy hips is corrupting even the good hips that are in him. That's titanium. Titanium is great. But even that can be corrupted by the curse of this world. What's the point? You see... We need heaven, which is a new place, just new bodies, 
because death, corruption, the curse of sin, it cannot be left to just limp around. It has to be utterly destroyed, removed, banished, if true human flourishing, creation flourishing, as God intended, is meant to ever be. It's not enough just to kind of fix parts as they break. Because ultimately, it will always lead to corruption. We need something entirely new. Let me give you another illustration. Lots of illustrations today, which is fun. Hiking. Hiking. Everyone who has ever hiked with me knows that you can go only as far as your weakest link, which is me. I'm sorry. Don't bring me along if you don't want to hit the top of the mountain. It's not that you can't go anywhere. We can see some nice places. It's just that things that you want to see, that you're designed to see, that are out there to see, you will never get there if you hike with me. A little out of shape, okay? Got bad hips. I've already told you that. Do you imagine hiking at altitude with these hips? There are places that we cannot get when we're carrying the weight of the imperfect. Now here, here, here's, don't be confused by this. God is so patient to wait as long as possible, beyond human possibility. He is so patient, and it's, it's confusing how patient God is to let us continue to hike, even though we try to do so without becoming and putting on the righteousness of Christ. He lets us go with him for as long as possible, but there is coming a day that he will have to cut the dead weight. Because of his intense love for those who have chosen to follow him, for those who have said, I want to be your child, for those whom he's creating heaven for, at some point there comes a time when he has to say, we need to go further, and you can't go there with that unrighteousness. And so out of his intense love, he will separate himself and all those who have put on the righteousness of Christ from those who haven't. Because there are places that he wants to take us, that he has designed us to see, that he has designed us to experience that we cannot in the current condition in which we are. 2 Peter 2.13 says this, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And it's so hard for our minds to wrap around. Well, well, how could it really be that much better than this? Because this world is incredible, and it is. And I like what C.S. Lewis has to say in his book, The Great Divorce. If you've, if you've never read this book, this would be a great book to read in parallel with this series. It's not that long. I reread it this week. You can also get it on audiobook, a great English accent, which brings to life all the colorful uh, euphemisms that, that C.S. Lewis uses. But in The Great Divorce, um, just to give you a little bit of background, 
Uh, it's this allegory, this extended, it's, it's not meant to be, a, he doesn't think it's actually this way. It just helps us to understand what it might be like. There's a gray city which where people go after they die, and you can get on a bus, and the bus takes off, off the ground, and starts to rise up into the sky, and it passes all of these giant cliffs. They're, they're the biggest thing you've ever seen. And it finally gets to the top of this cliff and it creeps out over the cliff and it gets to this land that is beautiful but in some ways harsh and hard for those ghosts who are from the gray city to be. And, and it's a series of dialogues between uh, people who, who have decided to stay there, which is heaven, talking to those who are trying to decide, do I come? And it's very, very interesting and, and dialogue after dialogue, and then near the end, near the end, he's talking, or he's, he's watching uh, the protagonist, who is a ghost, is watching a conversation uh, between a mother and his son, and the son chooses to go back to the gray city rather than go on towards the mountains. And um, the protagonist says uh, to one of the redeemed uh, who is there with him, well, why, why didn't she go and chase him back to the bus stop to try to convince him? And, and, and the redeemed says, to where? Where, where? where could she go? She cannot go there. And he said, yeah, yeah, the bus stop where they dropped us off. And, and the redeemed says, let me show you where that was. And he gets a piece of grass. And he gets, they get down on their knees and they're looking. And he says, there's where you got off. There was that cliff that you rose up past. It was just a crack in the ground of this place. That's how much bigger and grander the design of heaven is than this place. And we can't get there. We'll never be able to get there until we see it. But God tries to give us a picture of this is where I want to take the people who love me, that want to follow me, that want to worship me. This is where I'm trying to take them. And it's so much bigger. And you have to trust me. It's so worth it. Put on the righteousness of Christ. Can't ever get to those places here with this corruption, with, with the commingling of righteousness and unrighteousness, with holiness and unholiness. Can't get there. It has to be a new place where those things are stripped away, where the presence of God can dwell fully, and there is no unholiness in that place. Third, distinctive of heaven, which explains the why, is that it is a place of proper desire. See, it's not just about making the right choices, righteousness, or being the right kind of person. It's about desiring in the right kind of way. 1 John 2.17 says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's beautiful. The desires of this world are meant to pass away because there are proper, new, redeemed desires that God has in store for His children in heaven. Heaven is a place of passion. It's not devoid of desire. It's actually a place of unbridled, uncoerced, unmanipulated desire, passion, and love. And God can only dwell with creatures who have this perfect desire. 
who don't have the stain of sin or the stain of sin's desires. So our desire must be made new. You might say it this way. Heaven, the new creation, heaven equals proper affection met with proper reality. Proper affection met with proper reality. This is why we need life on earth. To help us build up our proper affections. You see, to have a great thing or the greatest of things undesired is to spoil the greatness of the thing in and of itself. To have the greatness or even the greatest of things undesired is to spoil the greatness. Heaven is a perfect fulfillment of a perfect longing. Let me give you an illustration. You may have heard me use this before. I, I, I think it explains a lot about women and about God. And they are very similar. What is the difference between a date planned and a date unplanned? At least in my marriage, and this might not be true of all relationships, in my marriage, a spontaneous date, even if it is exactly the same with every detail down to the amount that I tip the waiter, is not the same as if I plan it and tell Allie the week before, hey, I'm going to take you out on Friday night. It's not the same. And I think part of the reason that it's not exactly the same is that I have stripped from it the great joy of anticipation, the great joy of longing, the great joy of waiting for the fulfillment of a true good. I've taken that away, and I've learned this over the years. And so even if it's a day before, even if it's six hours before, I say, hey, I'm thinking about taking you out tonight. It changes the experience for her. And I think God gave us heaven, that, that, sorry, if God gave us heaven at the outset, if he just gave it to us at the outset, we would miss out on the greatest possible good, for we would lack the perfect fulfillment of a perfect longing, because we wouldn't have even known anything else. I think the fulfillment of a longing is part of the good, and it's a part of the good of heaven, and this is a question of desire. God wants us to desire that which he wants to give us. He doesn't just want to give it to us. Imagine a, a young boy learning chess. Six-year-old boy, his father wants him to learn how to play chess. And so he thinks, well, what if I just give him some extrinsic motivation? I'll pay him if he performs well at chess. And over time, the father's hope is that by learning the game, Learning the strategy, he'll develop a love of the game. And that extrinsic motivation and desire becomes an intrinsic desire. And so the father begins this process. Now the irony is, if the young boy does develop an intrinsic love of the game, even if his father stops paying him to win, there's a very good chance he'll get all and even more of the rewards of the game because of his intrinsic love for the game. 
God is trying to develop in us an intrinsic love for the game. And sometimes it doesn't always feel like it's there. But he's working towards an intrinsic motivation so that when we are in heaven, we will desire to be there more than anything. Not just because people tell us we should, but because we actually do. Another illustration I think that might help with this idea of desire goes like this. Imagine week after week, month after month, a young man walks in to Harborview Emergency Room and he has an addiction. And so every time he comes in, he comes with some drug-related overdose issue, symptom. And time after time, the doctors stand over this man with a sense of hopelessness because they know that they can only patch him up piece by piece, time after time, and send him back out in the world to once more injure himself. They feel hopeless. They can't fix him. They can't save him from himself. Unless they can somehow develop in him new intrinsic desires, a desire for life and holiness and right decision. But sadly, their hands are tied. They feel like they can't do that. They cannot. And so what they're doing is just prolonging the death cycle. We have a lot of medical profession, professionals in here probably feel that way sometimes. However, imagine now if you could change This young man's desires, and now his new desire is for life and for life to the full and for right decision. Imagine the new kind of life that could be created. And it starts by a changing of the desire. You see, when when we talk about what God wants in heaven, we're talking about a new body and new desires that lead to new, proper worship. And if any part of that is corrupt, it seeps into the other parts. So you need new everything, new uncorrupted bodies, the new righteousness of Christ put on, the new proper desires, and as we'll see in a moment, the ability to worship properly in the unveiled presence of Jesus Himself. And the reason why you need all those things at once and the reason that that can only happen through the new creation is because if you just fix one, then the corruption of the other will rot in the one. So say you changed or you were able to give the young addict a completely new body, perfected back to the original, but yet he had the same desire. He'll do to the new what he's done to the old. The desire must be changed. Heaven must be a new place without the old desires, without the old man. We must never see that again if we're truly to be free as God wants us to be free. So now let's look at this final distinction and it is the distinction of proper worship. Heaven is a place of proper worship. That is why God has created it. Revelation 21-22 says this, And I saw no temple in this new city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb who dwells there. 
Here's the point. Because God's desire is for a place in which he dwells, we need no temple to approximate his presence. He is there fully. And so that is what we are doing in the new heavens and new earth. And it's not a, it's not a and we'll talk about this more, it's not, a, it's not a 24-7 forever worship service. We'll worship him in every possible way. But we are there to worship. There is no temple because God is there receiving our worship perfectly. And so in the end, the reason that he washes us of our sin by his blood the reason that our bodies are made new, that our minds are made new, that our hearts are made new, that our desires are changed, that we are redeemed, that all creation is remade and perfected, is so that we can be perfect new worshipers of God. So that the new environment fits the ability to worship God rightly. Worship Him when He's standing right in front of us. C.S. Lewis says it this way, The point is not that God will refuse you admission to his eternal world if you, have, if you don't have certain qualities of character. The point is that if people do not have at least the beginnings of these qualities inside them, then no possible external conditions could make a heaven for them. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you wouldn't want to be in heaven if you didn't at least have the beginnings of the desire to worship God. Because that's what heaven is for. That's why he's created a new place. For worship. There is no such heaven out there if you want to worship yourself or you want to worship some other part of creation. It cannot be made for you. So, these distinctives, new creation, which we're calling heaven, it's a, it, it, is it a place without choice or desire or worship? No. It's a place with all those things, just like we feel them here, except for the fact that we'll make the right choice, we'll have the right desire, and we'll worship rightly. You see, We haven't lost the capacity when we are taken to heaven for these things. We've just lost the capacity to do them wrongly. And the reason that we've lost that capacity and gained the new capacity is because we've been getting given perspective on just how much better life with God and for God is than life without him. Scripture talks about the wolf and the lion commingling with the lamb, basically meaning without eating them (laughs) in the new heavens and earth. And so the question, does that mean that uh, the lion has lost its power or its sharp teeth? Of course not. It's just the capacity hasn't changed. It's just the desire has changed. And the, no want, no, and the lion no longer wants to eat the lamb. In the same way, we have the same, if not more, capacity, but yet we choose rightly. 
This is a beautiful picture. And if we need the strength, and we do, to see how do we do this, how do we use our power and our capacity and not mess it up, you know who we look to? Jesus. Because he walked, even in this world, with a full capacity and power that we'll never experience, and yet, at every turn, he chose, he desired to use that power and capacity and choice perfectly. Always to the full worship and will of the Father. And so we turn to him and we see it is possible and we follow his path and we follow Jesus. And when we realize that there is a way to this new creation, to this new heaven, we also realize how this world is actually not our home. We begin to realize that. And we don't realize it like a spoiled teenager saying, I just want more, God. We just realize it was never meant to be enough. Heaven was always God's plan for us. He had always designed us, not for this place, but for that place. Augustine wrote this, I am groaning with inexpressible groaning on my wanderer's path, remembering Jerusalem, that's the new city of God coming out that we heard about in Revelation. And my heart is lifted up towards it. Jerusalem, my homeland. Jerusalem, my mother. G.K. Chesterton, the great wordsmith, says this. The modern philosopher has told me again and again that I was right, that I was in the right place, and I had felt still depressed when I heard that I was in the wrong place. My soul sang for joy like a bird in the spring. I knew now why I could not feel or I did feel homesick at home. The author of Hebrews echoes this, speaking of all those great men of faith. He says, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the land. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking that the land they were from was their homeland, they would not have gone out. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Our souls are shaped for heaven. And we will not feel at home until we are there. And so in light of this, in light of this reason why God had to create a new place, a new creation, a place we call heaven, how do we live now? Because it's not just nice to know about, it's meant to shape us and change us now. So how shall we live in light of the why of heaven? The first thing I'll say is this. It's okay to be uncomfortable, unacquainted, unresigned to this world, thinking of a better possible life. That's okay. That's actually right. Because God has planned heaven. This, this is not a backup plan. 
Heaven is his first plan. And so if you don't feel like you're maxing out your credit card in this life, just know that there's an eternity, a vault of riches that you can swim in when you get to heaven. Footnote, ducktails. Charles Spurgeon said this, Christian, meditate much on heaven if, if it help you to press on and to forget the toil of this way. The veil of tears is but a pathway to a better country. That, wor- that world of woe is but a stepping stone to a world of bliss. And after death, what cometh? What world will open up upon our astonished sight? So groan. Long for heaven. Hope for heaven. As Augustine did and Chesterton and Spurgeon and Lewis. Long for it. We were meant to long for heaven. So that when we get there, we could say, God, thank you for your promises kept. When we know why heaven exists, then maybe we can learn to long for heaven as we ought. God wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to be in our presence, unveiled. It's unreal that that's what he wants, but it is what he wants, and that's why he's created the new creation. So, know this. You cannot anticipate, you cannot long for heaven unless you learn to imagine. God has given us human beings a great, great distinction that we can imagine So imagine heaven. Even if you get a few details wrong, that's okay. Dream of it. Think of it. Imagine. And in the end, it'll help you to desire heaven as you ought to and to desire God and His presence and to desire the worship of King Jesus. And hopefully next week it'll really help you when we talk more about the what of heaven, to help you imagine heaven. And then I'll say this. Heaven starts right now. It starts right now. All these things that distinguish it from this world, they start right now. You begin right now to eat the fruit of heaven and to breathe the air of heaven right now, even as you eat the fruit and breathe the air of this world. Therefore, new holiness, new righteousness, that should start emerging right now. New desire, proper desire for God's presence That should start emerging in your life right now. And then proper worship, new worship for King Jesus, that should start emerging right now. So let it start. Don't hold it back. Don't be scared to dream of heaven and to start living as though you are citizens of it because you are. God has designed you for it. He wants you there with Him. Start living it now. Start praying that those things happen in your life right now and start celebrating when you see it thus. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need you more than we could ever know. We need your goodness to become our goodness. We need your righteousness to become our righteousness We need your desire to become our desire. Teach us to be worshipers fully and perfectly, even now in this life. Let heaven come here 
in this moment, in this room, as fully as possible. Let us not be waiters, but help us to draw heaven to earth right now by the way we love and serve and worship King Jesus in this city in 2017 with our full being. God, we need your grace and your mercy to do this well. In Jesus' name, amen.